This episode of the Disney Film Project podcast is brought to you by touringplans.com. It is the one-stop shop on the internet for figuring out how you are going to plan your Disney vacation, Disneyland or Disney World, it doesn't matter. Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, you want to figure out how to get there and not wait in line? This is how you do it, touringplans.com. At Disneyland, you're trying to figure out how to get out there and how to navigate all the cool new stuff like Cars Land and Buena Vista Street and all that great stuff without having to wait in line? Touringplans.com. You can optimize your touring plans, check the crowd calendar, do all kinds of great stuff. Make sure you check that out over at touringplans.com. They're the sponsor of this week's episode of the Disney Film Project Podcast. everybody to the Disney Film Project Podcast. This is the show where we talk about the films of the Walt Disney Company. They could be Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm, Disney Toon Studios, anything and everything in between. We talk about it here on this program and over at DisneyFilmProject.com. I'm Ryan Kilpatrick, host of the program, and along with folks you're about to meet, we run DisneyFilmProject.com where you can find all kinds of great content, including Disney DVD and Blu-ray reviews, uh, reviews of upcoming films currently in the theaters. You can find things from back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s of the shorts and feature-length films from then, historical articles, all kinds of great stuff. So make sure you're going and checking out the content there at DisneyFilmProject.com, where you can also find the show notes for this podcast. All right, joining me as always, we have our fine film experts. First of all, a man who has been known to dig a hole in five seconds flat, five feet round, five feet wide, uh, five feet high, and that is Mr. Todd Perlmutter. Actually, I set the standards for that. I had to time travel and all that, but you know how it is. I you know, wrote the book. I uh, completely understand. Of course, as always, we also have Miss Rachel Kolb from JustPressPlay.net. How are you, Rachel? Good. Um, I thought for a minute when we started watching, when I started watching this, that maybe I'd switched out movies with Alexander and the Terrible No Good Very Bad Day because it seems like both protagonists have just a string of bad luck. But no, this this is holes we yeah. are talking about tonight. Yes, very different thing. Very different thing. Uh, and we have our fine producer, Miss Cheryl Perlmutter. You can find it about me slash Cheryl P three or on Twitter at Cheryl P three. How are you, Cheryl? Good. I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't remind everyone that Todd just did um, a Blu-ray review of Bears. There you go. And that uh, we hope you would go check that out on the website. You never know what you and can we, find we, on the website. And we'll be covering it in next year. We're going to do, um, what we're doing is we're starting off with um, the ever so popular Haley Mills. And then we're doing a couple other movies, and then we're moving, and then we're going to do um, a DVD release month, and we're covering a couple DVDs that released last year that we didn't get a chance to cover due to the schedule. And so we're doing a month full of DVD releases. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, we're 2015 schedule is uh, being worked on. So if you have suggestions, send them to us uh, at all the social media accounts for Disney Film Project or, or email DisneyFilmProject at gmail.com. And suggestions are not guarantees, folks. And also a very <laughs> true statement, yes. All right, uh, so as we sort of alluded to, we are touching on Holes tonight, the 2003 Disney film uh, uh, in conjunction with Walden Media that Disney produced. Uh, and distributed by uh, the Buena Vista 
distribution company. It was a pretty good success, especially for a low-budget picture. Um, it's based on the Louis... Uh, I, I don't know how to spell his last name. Sashar. Yeah, something like that, yep. Okay. Uh, and so to, to help us out with talking about the film, as we do from time to time, we've recruited uh, one of our friends from the Disney community. We have with us Dennis from the WDW Main Street Podcast. How are you, Dennis? Good. Uh, good to be on with you guys. I've been listening for a long time and a big fan of the show, so um, I'm elated to be on and uh, talk a Disney movie with you guys. Great. Appreciate it. So um, I guess first question to everybody is when was the first time you had seen this film? Because this was my first time. I, I, I was, you know, obviously knew about it when he came out in 2002, uh, but I had a, a young child at that point, so I uh, didn't get to, to the theaters to see it and just hadn't gone back around to uh, to find it. So what about uh, what about you guys? When was the first time you guys had seen this? I actually saw this one in theaters because I was a big fan of the original book. Hmm. Okay. I didn't even know it was in theaters, to be honest. I remember, <laughs> I remember watching it on TV because um, Disney Channel used to show it a lot. I once remember it, that, Once it yeah. hit TV, so... Yeah, myself, uh, my kids were at that age, uh, 8 to 10 years old, at least my daughter was, uh, when this was uh, very popular. And it was always on in the background, but I really never paid attention to it. I knew the songs, the catchy, uh, the whole song there at the beginning, but uh never really sat down and watched it. So I've watched it three times uh, this past week, so um, it was kind of interesting to actually sit down and watch it. And it wasn't a bad movie, actually. Yeah, I would, I, I would agree. Yeah, I, 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 Todd says I've seen this. <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen this, so I'm saying I didn't see this. Fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah, I, I, I'm just curious because it's one of those films that that um, that I think you know back in the late '90s, early 2000s, Disney made this switch over to making some of these more uh, low budget. Uh, but but family films and and some of these like with Wild Media and then they did, you know they did the Narnia books and and some of those so it's it's interesting and there's sort of a a rash of these through the early 2000s and then they have they have gotten far far afield from this uh, in in recent years everything's tentpole now under uh, under Bob Iger so it's, it's well, just one of those things that's interesting to track the the evolution of the studio. Yeah, it reminds me of when uh, when we covered Tex. Um, and we're talking about S.E. Hinton and uh, and Disney kind of trying to do something that's for a different age group and also like kind of aimed at boys. Yeah. But at least um, text, they took people that were unknowns. I think this, they were definitely going for that teenage market because um, she had, Le- I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong, so I, pro- I apologize in advance. Um, Sheila Booth was on Even Stevens right. at yeah. the time. So um, I think this was this was before they went to the the. I think if had this been a different different time, this would be um, a decom, as what they call it now, is it, um, which is on uh, Disney movie on TV, like yeah. Teen Beach Teen Beach movie was. Yeah. yeah, and this has a lot more uh, big name, you know, like movie star types in it, like with Sigourney Weaver and John Voight and Patricia Arquette. But I'm with you, Cheryl. Like in you know these days, I think they would just put those roles as TV stars, and and yeah, it would be on Disney Channel. Yeah, 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, also, interestingly enough, this is Shia LaBeouf's first movie. Um, after doing Even Stevens, this was his first feature film before getting into the Transformers franchise. And then quitting. And then being gone crazy, <laughs> as I call it. Yeah. And then he's not famous anymore, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, he's fallen off the I, radar. I, well, he hadn't met Optimus Prime yet. I also wanted to point out the uh, the brief Broadway connection to Shia LaBeouf, the fact that he got arrested recently for dis- for uh, disturbance uh, when he was apparently very loud at a per- uh, performance of Cabaret here in New York City. So kind of part of a little bit of his uh, meltdown of late. Uh, I thought everybody gets really loud at performances of Cabaret. <laughs> oh no, he was he was really bad. Apparently he he did some inappropriate slurs. Oh. Yeah, he does that these days. Yeah. But the, the less said about him and his actions these days, the, the better probably. <laughs> no, none of that is a reflection on his role in this movie. Uh, correct, or his acting, um, because I, I actually think he's he's a decent actor. Yeah. Uh, so my my question then, Rachel, you said you were a fan of the books, correct? Or the book, I should say. Yes, I am a fan of the book, and I'm a big fan of the author, um, who some he's he's only ever written this movie um, because he adapted the uh, screenplay. But um, the other series that he's probably best known for is the Wayside School book series, which. I was a huge fan of as a young kid because they are very strange books. They are definitely books that exist in a world entirely of their own. Um, if It's kind of like... I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. It's sort of like a humorous Twilight Zone, almost. Like, it's... it. It has its own reality to it, which is something that definitely bleeds over to something like Holes 2, where it's a very heightened reality. Hmm. So there was another another book after this, is what you're saying? Um, well, there's, there there was a sequel to this as there's, well. There's okay. actually two, two other books that are that are um, tied in with this, but the Wayside School okay. books are entirely separate. That's actually their own thing. There's a whole series of books called the Wayside School books, and there's also a, apparently a TV a cartoon series which I have not seen, so I don't know how good it is. But um, apparently they've also been adapted. So yeah. Uh, the the interesting thing about Sakar this being his only um, or Sashar um, this being his only um, screenplay is that Davis actually spent time to teach him how to do screenwriting because he felt that Sachar was so close to the source material that he would be the best writer for it because the book itself is so strong and he wanted it to remain in the screenplay so he didn't want somebody else to adapt it. Yeah. That makes that makes perfect sense, and, and that was why I asked the question. And Dennis, I assume you have you did not read the book since you said you you were a fan. Of, you know, your kids had watched the movie, and that's how you became acquainted with it. Exactly, exactly. I'm not familiar with the books at all. So yeah, that was my first question. Is um, I again? I think it was a good a good film, but it's very much laid out like a book with a lot of subplots and flashbacks and things like that. That like for me, it was a little jarring sometimes because we're walking down Camp Green Lake and all of a sudden we're in the the Wild West without much transition, which would make perfect sense as a chapter break in a book. But in the film, it sort of was a jarring transition from time to time. Did anybody else feel that? Yeah, way? 
At, Absolutely. At first I did, but then as it went on, I kind of liked the way it was filling in the pieces over time. I, my problem is with the editing. I think there are yes. some editing choices in this movie that are just, well, they're overt, and they're kind of stupid at points. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, at points, the directing and the editing kind of drive me nuts. Yeah, I think I think and maybe that's what I'm reacting to, because it's very much paced like a novel, the film is. And, yeah. and and while that's good in that they get in all the things that I would assume, like, I, after seeing this movie, I feel like this would make a great book. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> but it is a mean? great book. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like it, the way that the, the film is laid out is very novel-esque in that, like I said, you know, you have these nice chapter breaks and places where you go yeah. through a story and you're telling concurrent stories and, like, I love that kind of stuff in books. In film, it's very hard to do to pull all these disparate threads together towards the end. Like you said, it works. Like, they make it happen, but it's very disorienting, at least it was to me, in the first probably half of the film. Yeah. I mean, I, I found that in going, you know, like I said, I watched it three times in a very short span. I mean, even paying attention and, and taking notes, I mean... The second and third time I watched it, there were two or three times where I said, "Oh, now I get it," because you know they had, you know, like you guys said, they had left tidbits out there and kind of tied them together at the end. And if you weren't really paying attention, um, you might miss them and not get a part of the movie. Yeah, this is not this is not one you can multitask while you're watching. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, it's really hard because there's a couple points in the movie where they start inundating you with like a million things at once. And I mean, not even with the flipping back and forth between the scenes. It's just there's a lot of information in a couple of scenes and you're like, oh, maybe this is important. Oh, maybe this is important. Right, yeah, because because that's the thing is like little, the littlest aside lines can be very, very important later on in the film. I mean, like, things from the opening scene with the parents and stuff you, that you think is just doesn't mean anything, you know, it's just part of the, the setup, um, come back later on in the movie, and, and yeah, I had to go back a couple times just to, to remember what I was talking about, because I didn't get to sit and watch this in one fell swoop. So I think I watched, I think I watched it twice, but in three separate sittings, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a theme of, like, a big theme of the book and of the film is choice versus fate and almost how the two work together and that these small decisions made by people end up having these much bigger consequences. Hmm. I could see that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I wanted to add one more thing about the books is I, we're not, I'm not getting into it because I haven't read the book, but I do know that on the Disney Wikia page for this that there is a huge list of the key differences between the book in the movie because there's been a lot of discussion about that apparently and I wouldn't have ever taken a part in it but it, you know somebody might be interested in that so I'll make sure that's in the show notes oh very good to know yeah because so I knew the basic premise but the it sort of jumps right into a, the the information that you are going to need later in the movie because I mean like we start off with um, Shia LaBeouf's like narration, Stanley, his character Stanley Yelnats, which is Stanley backwards, is his last name, um, and that he's into a situation that's sort of beyond his control, which is the shoes fall from the sky, 
And from there, like, even the leap of the shoes falling from the sky and that shot of them falling to him being in trouble and arrested, like, that even took me, like, I had to rewind and go back to that a few times. And I think, to your point, Rachel, that was sort of editing. Yes, and technically that's that's not the first scene of the movie. The first scene of the movie is the kid getting bitten. Barf bag. Oh, yes, yes you're right, bag. you're right. Good yep. point. Mm-hmm. Because I actually really love that they kicked off the movie with this scene because it kind of set the mood for the rest of the film, that it's like, this is a movie in which people can get hurt and people could potentially die and, you know, young people could potentially get hurt. Um, and, that, and that this exists in a world where the adults really don't care that much. Yeah. So. I think one mistake was made in this scene, in the in the yeah. very opening scene, is it shouldn't have been a rattlesnake. It should have been one of the spotted lizards because then it would have tied better with the whole spotted lizard thing and the fact that Kate gets bitten by one later on. I know I really jumped the gun there. Yeah, the one yeah. problem with that is that apparently there's no cure for the lizard as opposed to the snake which they uh, they didn't want to necessarily kill him because they say that he's in the hospital but yeah um but he's not dead yeah the kids being replaced throughout the movie is a rec- is one of the many recurring themes so right yeah no you're right the the opening is that is that scene but like did anyone else was it am i the only one who had that issue of of you know like the shoes are falling and then all of a sudden he's in trouble for stealing shoes Oh, yeah, definitely. I was like, where in the heck did that come from? I was expecting a whole different movie. <laughs> it, it would have yeah. been nice <laughs> yeah. if they opened with the Madame Zeroni stuff a little bit. Yeah, some, something like that. Some, I feel like in a movie with so many flashbacks, opening with a flashback might have made a little more sense. Also, I, I also think that, spoiler alert, dun, dun. one in the movie... Had they shown us the kid throwing the shoes, that would help a lot. Well, that's one of the big revelations in the sto- in the yeah. book, though that that um that Zero was the one that that stole the shoes. Yeah, but with his, it was a revelation to him. Not I, I'm not sure we needed that revelation. I think we could have known the whole time, and it would have been okay. No, I, th- I think that's that's one that I would have held back, but okay. but I, I I see where you're coming from though because there's so much that's slowly parceled out. I, I think that's what I'm saying too is like there's so much that's slowly parceled out over the film that it's hard to keep track of everything, and they don't they don't necessarily give you everything you need in a scene. They just kind of like like and this is a great example where all right the shoes fell from the sky. Next thing you know, he's being escorted home by a cop. Yeah. <laughs> Huh? What? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it doesn't even do that, right? Because doesn't it – he's narrating, and don't they kind of – he gets the sneakers, and then they flash to the bus, and then they flash to him getting brought home? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he's he's already on the bus to, to the camp uh, before we really know why or how or what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. So how does everyone feel about the um, – the cast of the movie in general, because we really only talked about Shia LaBeouf there, or LaBeouf. Okay, well, I <laughs> I have certain members of the cast that I have like highlighted in my notes to make sure to mention because there I believe that there are two MVPs for this movie that if I don't think if they weren't in the movie I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much as I do, which is uh, Dule Dule Hill and Sigourney Weaver. 
Okay, see, I kind of sort of feel that John Voight steals the show. I oh, he's agree. amazing, too. Oh, he's fantastic. <laughs> I, but... I mean, he was so into his character, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's because I, I mean, I guess I was reading one of the interviews that Davis gave, and he said that Voight was actually really spinning in his hand when he slicked back his hair. So he was, like, completely in character. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think he played a, a great part, and you know, as Mister Sir, and uh, you know, there's a lot of humor in there, but he still added an element of, um, you know, an authority figure, if you will, for the kids. So I, I think he, uh, you know, he served uh, that role well. Oh, I have another casting note here because this actually ties into to who I wish would have directed this movie. Um, Tim Blake Nelson is in this movie, and. Um, and I really think it would be amazing if the Coen brothers would do a remake of Holes. <laughs> <laughs> because you look at all the weird elements that are going on in this. Like the little bit of like almost magical quality to it. The weird stuff. The being out in the middle of the desert. And they've already shown with, uh, with True Grit they can do remakes really well. And since they've worked with Tim Blake Nelson before on Oh Brother Where Art Thou, I think... And not to mention that in that one, he's playing a criminal fugitive. Um, I just think it's perfect pairing of material with director. You know what else about Tim Blake Nelson? What else? He's our Avengers connection. Yes. Yes. He was, he played, they didn't actually have the leader in the Incredible Hulk movie with Ed Norton, but he played Samuel Stearns, who had that movie been more successful than it was, might have gotten a sequel and might have then played the leader because Samuel Stearns is the leader, so... You know what else he's playing? Ryan, do you know? Uh, no. Yeah, he's actually playing uh, Mole Man, Harvey Elder, in uh, the upcoming Fantastic Four movie, which is not a Disney Marvel movie, but is a Marvel movie. So. And does not sound very good. But that's no, it doesn't. But, you know, they got Mole Man. At least they're starting at the beginning. Uh, true, but <laughs> it still sounds bad. I wanted to mention the, um, the young man who played um, Zeroni. Um, was actually doing his bar mitzvah training during the and got his bar mitzvah done during this movie, and oh, well. that's a lot for a thirteen-year-old kid to do yeah. is to do a movie plus get prepared to do a bar mitzvah. So. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's impressive. But yeah, I, and we didn't even talk about uh, Henry Winkler as the dad. Yes. <laughs> who's great. And then the grandfather is played by Nathan Davis. Um, uh, and then the mother who, uh, I don't I don't know the actress's name, but she has been she was in uh, Men in Black. She's been in several different uh, films. I, I think she's pretty great as well. I think the whole cast of his family fits what they're going for of the lovable losers like so very, very well. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I actually have a note about Henry Winkler in this movie and just about live-action Disney movies around this time as well. I think this was really the last of the inventor-father character in a live-action Disney movie, which growing up as a kid of the 80s and 90s, I really thought was a thing because of movies like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and because of movies like uh, like Holes. Um, <laughs> but I can't really think of another, another uh, Disney father since then who has been the inventor. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. Hmm. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. Yeah, it's like Henry Winkler and Rick Moranis. <laughs> and Bell's dad. 
and Belstead, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But yeah, so uh, we, we've talked about the fact that uh, Stanley was on the bus. He is uh, Stanley Yelnats the fourth, because his father and his grandfather also named Stanley Yelnats. Uh, and again, because their last name is Yelnats, that's why they named themselves Stanley. Um, you kind of understand why they become lovable losers. But his father is working on a foot odor suppressor, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, they go through this whole explanation of it in the movie that's way quick. But the idea is that he's sitting there and he's got a whole bunch of shoes and he's boiling them and putting chemicals on them, if you watch closely, in his scenes when he's in the background. Yeah, when he's he has arguing. a whole house full of shoes. Yeah. Just shoes. Um, and yeah, and that's when they find the sneakers that, uh, that Stanley quote-unquote stole and the next thing you know, he's sentenced to go to Camp Green Lake out in the middle of the desert. Somewhere. Well, he chooses to go. Well, yeah. Tr- well, kind of. It's, yeah, it's a choice between <laughs> between basically prison and Camp Green, Green Lake, which doesn't sound too bad because of the name. But there's no lake, and absolutely nothing is green. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I, I thought it was a bit of an overkill with the, uh, if you notice, he did have handcuffs on and the uh, the guard had a shotgun next to him. I, I just, you know, I said it's a camp and I realized it's a, you know, a hard labor camp, if you will. But it just seemed, that scene of him on the bus, it just seemed a little bit of overkill to me. For sure. He did yeah, several I, things. I thought this was, I thought, I, I mean, like the whole thing was very bizarre to me. The, you know, like the moving him quickly through the sentencing and all that kind of stuff. I was like, this is a very rapid justice system uh, and very quick to condemn this child whom they have no evidence that he actually stole anything. There's no eyewitnesses. It's just the fact that he found these shoes and he's sentenced to like 15 years hard time, basically. Yeah. They play this up in the book a bit more that just nobody wants to believe him. Because he he tells the cops that he got hit on the head with these shoes, and they're just like, yeah, sure, sure you did, kid. I mean, yeah, they of course they fell from the sky. I think part of the part of the acting that they left out was the actor, the the, the sweet feet character, and that the, his testimony I think was was you know that not beneficial to him, so. I think that made things worse. Well, they don't show it until later on in the movie, though. So, right, like because, like we're saying, because they keep jumping around between these constantly converging stories, right? Yeah. It, it is. We don't get that piece of information where Mister Sweetfeet, right? They don't give him another name, right? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> where, yeah. Where, where he's uh, being questioned by the, uh, I guess, the prosecuting lawyer, right? Yeah, that's not. Yeah. I mean, it's almost what two thirds through the movie, probably before we get that 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 yeah. piece. Yeah. Well, we know from the get go that Stanley's not guilty, but Stanley seems okay with everything that's going on. That's the weird part about it. Very weird. Okay. But I I also kind of give that to his character because the way he kind of like walks through a situation, you know, he's he's very calm except for a couple points at the movie. I I would say that it's more that he's gotten used to having bad luck 
because that's something that they really drill in in the book that he has always had bad luck. This isn't the first time that something you know ridiculous has happened to him, and he's ended up getting punished for something. Um, right. But again, this is a movie versus a book, so you don't really there there isn't an easy way to show that. Well, and they mention it like in the scene in the in the kitchen where. Pop is stewing all the shoes. They mention that you know the family's cursed with bad luck, and Grandpa says something, tosses off this aside about Elia Yelnats. But like none of that makes any sense at that point, yeah. To to a viewer, and and like that's an example to me of like, hey, that's something that you probably want to have because there was some crosstalk over that, right? Like he's he's saying that line, and then there you know like the cop and I think somebody else is talking at the same time, and you. Like to me, like that's something you probably want to mention that because it's going to come back later. Um, it, 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 I don't know. That I, I'm with you. I think in, in the in, Rachel in the editing, I think they they did a disservice to the fact that there's these intricate stories that are going to dance back and forth, but they they did them in the wrong places or at the wrong times and with different cuts and things that that just re, it really threw me off. Yeah, and I do think that. Um, some more experienced filmmakers and maybe some more skillful filmmakers like someone like the Coen brothers who are used to doing very complicated stories like this, I think they could have done a better job just cinematically getting the story across. Yeah, I agree. Now, what I will say is the the scenes that take place in Camp Green Lake, like once Stanley gets there and then he meets Mr. Sir, played by John Voight, and is introduced to the idea that he's going to have this orange uniform. He's going to, you know, he's going to dig a hole every day uh, that is five foot wide and five foot high, the length of his shovel, uh, and that's he's doing it to build character, uh, which is rather patently obvious, not true. <laughs> you know, like that whole setup, and to. Not to make a pun, but that whole setup and the the introduction of the other guys in the camp, I thought that stuff is like really really great, and that's why when we start jumping back in time to other you know like between Camp Green Lake back in the day when there was a lake there, and then the uh, the Euro- I guess European Madame Zeroni stuff, that's where I was like, wait, I wanted to spend time with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Mash? The, yes, ma- yes. The, movie, the movie, not the not the TV show. Yeah, the this Altman is, movie. This yep. is a lot like when Hawkeye first shows up at camp. This whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like exactly the same almost. Yeah, you're right. You know, you know. Now that you mentioned that, like, when I'm thinking of this film, it it shares it's it's got some Robert Altman DNA to it. Oh yeah. Between between. You know, I'm thinking of that one. I'm thinking of uh, Nashville, Gosford Park, um, even Popeye that we talked about earlier this year. Of you know, movies that movies where you have this wacky cast of characters that you just sort of fall into. Oh yes, heavyweights. Yes, definitely heavyweights. Which because yep. I... <laughs> it's funny because I'm editing because we're well okay we're we're revealing more show history, folks. I'm editing heavyweights now because we're on vacation soon. So we have to have it edited so we don't have to do stuff on vacation. So, so I'm, I'm editing that now, and it, it was like funny because I just we just watched it the other night, and I'm like, wow, I'm going. That's why I'm listening to heavyweights. 
Well, that one also has Tim Blake Nelson playing the recruiter for the camp. Um, it's also a summer camp movie, and as you mentioned, yeah, it's a bunch of preteens fighting back against the evil owner of a camp. So, <laughs> I and these these were both my choices, and it was entirely by accident that I, you know, picked two movies that were so similar. Well, I mean, they're also from a, you know, the, you remember them fondly, too, so there's, there's that. Yeah. Oh, I also wanted to mention, uh, well, I want to ask, how did you guys feel about the music choices in this movie? I, I mean, I, I honestly didn't notice it too much. It comes and goes. The only song that I'm super familiar with is the the theme song, the Dig It song, and that's just because I have it on my iPod from some Disney thing from back then. So, see yeah. I'm in, so. Well, this is a re another reason why I wish the Coen Brothers would have done this movie because I really hate the music choices. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, the music is actually done by uh, Joel McNeely, who did some really fantastic music for A Million Ways to Die in the West. Really, the only thing to recommend about that movie. Um, but I just hate the music in this movie. Like sometimes it's it's so overbearing at times. It is literally saying. Like there's there's a scene later on in the movie where they're literally singing "Don't Give Up" while they're climbing up a mountainside. <laughs> it's 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 really it's really terrible, obvious music. Yeah. Well, the Dig It song is popular because the kids in them, themselves, the ones that we're talking about in the movie, are the ones singing that song. Yeah, the Dig It song is. I I enjoy the Dig It song, but the rest of the music in this movie is really awful, in my opinion. I never remember the rest of the music, to be honest. Yeah, that me too. Like, I almost rather would have heard the main song multiple times. Yeah, the, like, it comes in at times when there really should be silence. Or there should just be the dialogue, and that's it. Is part of that because there's a lot of expanses where, that I feel just draw on too long in this movie? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. I mean, like, what the movie's about two hours. I want to say just uh, just over two hours, or, or around two hours. Yeah, and just think, try two hours. Yeah, I think it could they could have easily lost about ten fifteen minutes, maybe maybe more. Um, and I think part of that is because of the fact that they're spacing those stories out so much. Because yeah. let, I mean, let's be honest. Like, there's not enough story in each of the three main stories to to prop up an entire film. Um, but when you blend them together, they do make a lot of sense. Um, but like the Camp Green Lake stuff, there's probably about, you know, that's the majority of the film. Um, but it's maybe, what, an hour 15 or so of, of the whole film? Well, I think one of the problems, too, is they bring in Sigourney Weaver really late into the movie. Yes. I mean, I actually checked the running time, and she comes in about 40 minutes into the movie. Um, she's... As far as her entrance and everything, she's actually really similar to Agatha Trunchbull from Matilda. Um, she's this female villain, very distinctive look, um, with the cowboy hat and the, the car and everything, very short-tempered, violent tendencies. And, um, and yeah, she has a very late entrance into the story, um, but she kind of steals the, like, she kind of steals the movie. Her and John Voight, too, but especially her, in my opinion. Yeah, and she, no, I, and, I agree. 
and she really causes most of the conflict. She's the reason why they're out there digging in the first place. Right, and and then for, for because of the fact that she has such a tie to the story of Camp Greenlink in the past, that's why like I I thought it was weird at the beginning that she was she came in that late, but then especially when we get to the very end and like you say find out that she's the reason why they're all digging, she's the one who has the main connection to everything that's happened in the past. Like she's vital to the to the plot of the film, and and she's not really. She, she really doesn't have a lot to, to actually do. She sends everybody else to do things yeah. um, in, in the film. So she's sort of a villain by appearance only. Yeah, well, I find it, it's, it's funny how they introduce things because, like, we get a flashback almost immediately after the first, after the first day goes through. Right. And, and we, we meet – we learn from his parents, his, his dad and his – grandfather they're singing this the curse and her mother his mother's upset and we learn about how his great-grandfather after coming to america got robbed by kissing kate barlow and she stole his chest of food right and we yes. don't really and and like it's basically a throwaway at this point and it's like when you get to the end that was like what i thought was the coolest thing is just everything pays off that they were really super careful about no you're absolutely right about that but like you said i i think the problem is early on in the film and 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 i'm not somebody who really loves like you know tossing things in early and you know then paying them off later in, in this fashion so i will freely admit this is not my normal sort of thing i like to have you know linear storytelling more so than anything else um, but I do appreciate it, especially in books when they do it. The problem is in a film, you throw this in early in the movie, and it's confusing more so than it is enlightening. And you want to, you know, you're trying to enlighten the audience, and basically you've thrown in this flashback of, uh, without much in the way of ex explanation, just, hey, there was a Yelnats that was here, and he got robbed, and that was a thing that happened. Yeah. <laughs> And we also get an appearance by Eartha Kitt. <laughs> uh, Eartha Kitt is like, everything she touches, well, she touched, was so awesome when she would do stuff like this because she would be so into a role like this. You know, and oh, it, totally, yeah. yeah and Madame Zeroni is just a, a great character. It's really funny, too. So let me ask you a question. When you learn Zero's real name... Do you did you make the connection right then and there or not? Myself, the first that yeah, the first time I, I watched it, I did not. I didn't really catch the hunt of after the second, the second time through, and then it was um, you know blatantly obvious that that was the connection. But yeah. again, like I said earlier, unless you're really paying attention to you know, plus you're trying to you know, as the movie goes on learn all the nicknames and understand the characters and stuff. So they're throwing a lot of names at you, both nicknames, regular names. And that was just another one that you really had to pay attention to understand the connection later on. Yeah. No, I will say once I found out that his name was Zeroni, yes, I, that's when the whole thing clicked into place for me as to what they were, what they were doing as far as the multiple stories up until that point, I thought they were, we were just, learning about the history of the Yelnats clan and, like, the curse is, like, a side story. Like, I wasn't sure that it was all going to come together and pay off. And when I found out that his name was Zeroni, I'm like, ah, okay, I get it. 
you know, he's going to have to break the curse and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And Madame Zeroni is right about everything. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Especially that that girl is empty-headed and not good for him. <laughs> yes, because this is the, I mean, it's spread out over two flashbacks, right? Um, the, this this one and one that comes later in the movie, but the story yep. of the of the Yelnats curse, which is that Elia Yelnats uh, tried to win the love of Myra Menke and does so by um, trying to get a pig that is fat enough to bribe her her father, and so she has to he he has to go and. Uh, appeal to Madame Zeroni, who says, okay, if you will uh, haul this pig up the mountain, sing to it, let it drink, then it will become fat. Um, and then if you do so, then you will have to do the same thing for me. You have to carry me up the mountain, let me sing um, once you get what you want. Um, and so he goes and gives the pig to Myra. She actually can't decide between him and a very, very disgusting gentleman who also has offered a pig. <laughs> And he, I, and I love how he, it just clicks with him, like, because he, he gets so disgusted that it comes down to pick a number from 1 to 10. Yes. <laughs> and then I, I really enjoyed the scene, you know, the, the, the next scene, you know, you know, the way they show him in, in the boat, like, oh, I forgot. And then they cut back, and she's smoking on the pipe there, a little upset that he never came back to, to bring her up the mountain. Right. And so that's that is the origin of of the curse of the great the great curse of the of the Yelnats there, um, and so that's that's why they are they are no longer in favor and, and get uh, you know passed over and unlucky and, and all those good things. Uh, but, but yeah, that's when, and then you know like we said we skipped ahead a little bit, but you know once you find out Zero, um, who's one of the kids in the camp, he never speaks. Uh, we find out later on, much later on, actually, that his name is is Hector Zeroni, um, and for me, that's when the whole movie sort of clicked into place. Yeah. We also learned that Zero is the fastest hole digger. Yes, we learned that rather rapidly that that he can dig holes better than anybody. It's just at that point in the film, he doesn't talk to anyone. Um, he and there there's a point at which Stanley and he start to bond because. Um, you know, Stanley is getting picked on by the other kids, um, but he's actually nice to Zero. Um, he ends up trying to teach Zero how to read because Zero can't read. Yeah. So uh, they start they start forming a bond, and it's not until you know much later that 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 really pays off. I mean, it it, it pays off. You know, after gosh, probably. 40 minutes later, I would say, in the, in the runtime of the film, because we're also, you know, we, we talked about the two flashbacks for, for Madame Zeroni, but we also got the, the flashback to Camp Greenlake, and then I, the second story of, of Kate Barlow, like, we get introduced to Kate Barlow, the outlaw, early on, but the second story of how she became Kate Barlow, the outlaw, that one, I feel like, gets parceled out over a long stretch yeah, over the, over the middle of the film, and that one, I think more so than the curse, that one was the one where I was like, okay, I think I know where we're going with this, but I'm not sure why. <laughs> and yeah, I, I will apologize to you guys because uh, I had to in in a make 
making my notes and my rundowns uh, uh, to talk about this tonight, I had to write out the three stories separate from like how they run in the movie just so I keep track of them. So I, I don't remember exactly where each flashback landed within the, the, the role of the film because in order for me to keep track of it, I had to <laughs> write out all three stories separately. Yeah, I mean, I found myself, you know, I thought it was just me, but I, like I said earlier, I found the movie just generally very confusing the first time through, and I kept going to my daughter asking her, well, how come this happened, and how come that happened, and, you know, she'd give me a tidbit here and there, and it's just, uh, you know, like I said, there's just so much going on, and, and if, if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss something, and... um I don't know. I just found it very confusing. So the fact that you wrote out each of the three stories makes me feel good that uh, it actually <laughs> was a little complex and it wasn't just me. <laughs> no, no. I think I think it was intentionally vague, if I could say that. Like I think the idea was to keep the audience guessing throughout, and the hope was that the audience would get invested in each of the three stories, um, probably more so in the in the Kate Barlow story and the Stanley story. Um, to and, and that would drag you along until it gets, you know, resolved. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. one, one of the moments that I like best in the movie is when he's writing the letter to his mom. Yes. Be- and one of the, re- the reasons why I like it is because what's going on is he's lying completely and utterly to his mother about everything and it all being okay because it goes back to what Rachel was saying is Stanley does have character already. He doesn't need to build character, right? He's already so, you know, wise in the way of the world because of the way it's apparently treating him that he's already smart enough to know, hey, you know what? I don't want to worry my mom. I'm just going to tell her everything's hunky-happy, you know? Yeah, and also because of the fact that his family is poor because his father is an unsuccessful inventor. Yes. Um, And he... They make a bigger deal of this in the book, I think, than they do in the movie, but his mom always wanted to send him to summer camp, and she always wanted to be one of those moms that would send their kid to summer camp, but they could never afford to do it, so they were trying to find kind of the silver lining of all this, that it's like, well, now you get to go to summer camp. Yeah, for 18 <laughs> yeah, months. Yeah, there was a throwaway line in, in this one. It was really, I agree with you, Rachel, it was, it was there, but was much more of a throwaway line. If you didn't if you didn't pick up on it, it was lost. Yeah, the the privilege issue is a much yeah. bigger one in the there, book. There's a lot of that, that, though. Like, I mean, yeah. the whole film. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking what happens next. I think next is when Stanley brings a fossil to the doctor, right? Right. And then what happens is the fossil – well, because they make this point that you get the day off if you – or the rest of the day off if you find something important. Yeah, if you, if you find something important, you, there's a chance you're going to get the day off. And uh, there's a moment where Stanley finds a fossil and brings it to Mr. Sir and, the, and, the, and Dr. – I can't remember his, his name. Pendansky. Pendansky. Because he's pendentive. <laughs> Uh, and, and you know they make the point of saying like you know hey do you think uh, you think the warden's interested in in fossils, uh, which sort of kind of belies the point that you know they're obviously out there looking for something. It's not they're not actually building holes to to build character uh, as stated earlier in the movie, which I think I think we all kind of probably figured out early on that you know they're out there digging for a reason. Yeah, yeah. But the important thing that we learn at this 
point because this is it leads literally into what you were saying with the the Kate versus Catherine storyline. Yes. Right. Um, is that where they're digging holes was once a lake and a town, and that the, it's the warden's grandfather who once owned the lake and half of the town. That's that's the key piece of information that we learned that Pendansky passes along to uh, Stanley at this point because right. they're not calling him caveman yet. So. Right, which is which is also I thought was a little weird, but you know that's a whole other thing. It's like, hey, everybody's got a nickname, but this guy, and then you know he finally does get one, you know, well, later he, on. He earns it. That's that's the difference, right? They are because they spend a lot of the movie. They call him like Neanderthal, like is the first thing they call him, but and that's where I caveman came from. Is that's what they called him, and they translate it. But it's not until he stands up to, I guess, someone who's a camp bully, but they don't even play it up. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Like, you know, you don't ever, you don't ever actually uh, uh, know why he's that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so. And but yeah. we go to Sam selling onions. Yeah, and so the the story that gets told, um, like you were talking about, is the story of Camp Green Lake, which is the town where uh, where they're they're digging now, but there actually was a lake at that time. And so. Uh, Dulé Hill that, that Rachel mentioned earlier is Sam the Onion Man who's basically trying to show everyone all the uses, the various and sundry uses of onions and how they can be used to cure anything, even uh, to repel these yellow-spotted lizards, uh, which we've seen in the present of, of the film as well as we see them in the past. Um, <laughs> I forgot the scene where, where John Voight shoots the lizard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That is crazy. Yes, the whole lizard thing is is kind of well. The whole film's kind of crazy, but yeah. that's okay. Well, they're not real. There's no such thing as a yellow spot lizard, right? Everybody read that when they were researching. Yeah, and, yes. and yeah. the CGI lizards really don't hold up, by the way. Um, <laughs> like already, the CGI is looking pretty dated on those. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I, I didn't mind it so much. I didn't think it was you know I didn't think it was too bad. But, but yeah, you're right. It was. It was. It doesn't. It doesn't hold up to stuff like you know Avengers or, or yeah. some of the new new stuff. I kind of like um, it though because yeah. it keeps it surreal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh right. yeah. And the whole point is that um, that Dulé Hill's character that he was growing these onions and you know selling them to everyone, so they were getting these onions and he was keeping the uh, the lizards away. But once he's gone and he's not selling his onions and his tonics and everything, then the lizards are move in again the whole thing of one person and one decision making a big difference right and that i did not pick up on until i read about it after i'd watched the movie twice yeah (laughs) so one movie we haven't covered which but Todd and i decided to do off-topic research was the treasure of matakumbi and this this scene if you see treasure of matakumbi Will remind you a lot of the of the snake oil salesman in that movie. Yes, that movie also does have a snake oil salesman. So good to know. And does Pete's Dragon for people who remember? It does. <laughs> One of my favorite snake oil salesmen. <laughs> yep. But but yeah, the whole story here is like exactly what you're saying of Sam being the Onion Man. He's the one who's keeping the yellow spotted lizards away. Uh, and he runs into Catherine Barlow, the school teacher, played by Patricia Arquette. Um, and so she works a deal with him to help her fix the schoolhouse 
over over the course of the next few flashbacks. Um, she gives him her spiced peaches in exchange for helping her fix the schoolhouse, which is actually just an excuse on his part um, and hers to a degree uh, to have him be around and, and because, you know, he is a, an African-American gentleman back in the days when African-Americans and, and, and white folks are not supposed to mix. So, so that actually pays off rather quickly. The whole thing with Kate Barlow of, or, or Catherine Barlow at that point, when Stanley is digging and he actually finds what looks uh, at first glance, looks like a bullet or a shotgun shell is what a lot of the kids think it is. Um, he actually is forced to give this to one of the other kids so that kid can take the day off. And so X-ray so that the next day when they find it, that's when we finally see the warden. She finally gets called out and we see there's a KB on the, the shell. Uh, it, it turns out later we figure out that it's a lipstick tube. Um, but again, this is something that I feel like was sort of vague for the purposes of being vague rather than, connecting Kate Barlow like this should have been an explicit connection to Kate Barlow and my first time wa- through watching it I didn't get that oh I kind of figured out right away that that the KB was hers but I didn't understand what it meant right you know yeah why they would be finding this thing out in the middle of nowhere right but the the important thing that happened here is because of the switcheroo where, where caveman gives or Stanley gives x-ray the the tube is the place where they think they found it is not where it was actually found so then the warden goes bajonkers yeah and she starts digging like massive tunnels (laughs) all in the wrong location yeah all over the place right and even that like like at first i was like when, again, like I said, I kind of watched it twice over three sittings. When I was coming back the second time, I caught that part of the switch. Like, so much going on in that one scene of, like, hey, this this isn't a lipstick tube, it's a bullet. Um, no, it's in the wrong place, and here's the warden that's being introduced. Like, just that five, ten minutes has is so critical to what happens through the for the end of the film that, I feel like they almost kept one mystery too many. Like, just tell me it's a lipstick tube, and let's 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 go with right. That. I mean, the switch, yeah. the the thing about the onions, ex, all of it is the every is all the key factors at the end of the movie have happened in the like the last couple scenes. Right. And and when they happen, you don't really know that they're important. Yeah. So it's a little it, it's it's somewhat tricky. I, I think the good news is, like you said, at the end, it all pulls together and you, you, you figure it out. So, so that's, the, that's the good part. Yep. Uh, and, and, yeah, it's about this time that, that Hector, uh, that, that Zero, uh, they start trying to um, figure out how to teach him to read. And uh, Stanley starts um, – it, it's right about here where he, he becomes caveman, correct? Shortly thereafter. Um, it's, be, it's just before this. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I knew it was in this situation. Again, I had to write the stories out no, yeah. amongst themselves because of the, the, the jumps back and forth. 
Yeah, well, it, it's before they call the warden. It's like the scene before between him finding the lipstick and them right. and them turning it in the next day is where he gets his nickname. Right. And so, yeah, we get that, and then we get a little bit more of the Kate Barlow story of uh, of Sam, her and Sam. Um, not quite to the end of the story, um, but we get you know just a little bit more of of him fixing things around the schoolhouse and uh, you know the, the the basic idea of that that they're in love and there's this one very the part that I thought was very sweet of of their story, which is when she's you know he's, he's gone around and fixed all the different things around the schoolhouse and he says you know I could fix that over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, until finally, you know, when he leaves, um, he, she's crying, and he finally comes in the door and says, I can fix that, and then kisses her. Um, I thought that was really well done between the two mm-hmm. of them, and Dulé Hill plays it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And at this time, we learn that part of the problem is that she's got somebody else trying to court her unsuccessfully. Correct. And he... he Oh, he sees them kissing. This is this Trout Walker guy who we learn over time is the grandfather of the warden. That's the important thing. She's Walker, Texas warden. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, we, we, we eventually learn that, like, towards the very, very end of the film. Yeah. Uh, we, lear- we learn that, but... Yeah, and then... We have a, a, you know, like we, now that we have this budding friendship between Zero and, and Stanley, um, we then have to break them up apparently because there's a there's a moment where um, he, he's getting, where Zero's getting picked on, not by the other kids out there, um, but he's getting picked on by Mr. Sir and, and Padansky. And all of a sudden it goes into a survival movie because he runs away out across the desert. And Mr. Sir had made a point at the very beginning of the movie that, you know, hey, um, if you go out in the desert, you're going to die. And we had also seen Stanley's descendant, um, who got robbed by Kate. That was one of the very first things they mentioned is, you know, he was out in the desert for X number of days, and he managed to survive. Yeah. Well, actually, even before Zero reveals that he can talk and... And is, inte- is intelligent instead of what everybody but Stanley thinks of him. Um, we we get the whole thing where they end up killing Sam off. Yes. Yeah. Which this scene just, every time I see it, it upsets me. Same way it is in the book. In the book, it's actually a bit more distressing because um, Kate is out on the boat with him when he's killed. And she doesn't want to be rescued by them, but they basically grab her and force her into their boat. Oh yeah, that, that yeah. is disturbing. That would be worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, yeah, they they round him up and, and end up, you know, shooting him. Yeah, because... they, and everything that happens is again, it all it all plays back into it, right? Because she's um, she starts killing people, and the sheriff's the first one that she kills, and she puts on her lipstick and kisses him and leaves, and that's the why it's the lips. That's when you see the lipstick case, right. In the past, the other thing is that. Um, when they kill him, he's out on the water, right? And now, obviously, like Rachel said, the lake and the water and everything doesn't exist anymore, right? But 
if you listen to what Mr. Sir is saying to them about water, how, how water is life and he is the life giver, is it's actually metaphoric of the fact that when Sam died, the land died, the area died. Yep. Yeah, it's the, there's a lot of metaphor going on here. Yeah. To, to say the least, right? There's, there's, there's all kinds of metaphors going on, and um, they don't it's not something that they're going to, I mean, they are hitting you over the head with it, but it's also, you know, fine from a story standpoint as well, which I, I enjoyed that part of it. Like you're saying, like you could read it that way or you could just go, you know, Hey, you know, the lake dried up, you know, later. And, and the, the fact that he wasn't there with the onions is why the lizards, you know, overran the place and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's how, and we had seen earlier in the film, right, that it was Kiss and Kate Barlow, and we found out that you know that's who Patricia Arquette was playing, and she's, you know, she shoots people, kisses them, all that, all this good stuff. Yeah. Now, Todd, you should mention what you called it. Oh. <laughs> Actually, it still doesn't even happen yet. Okay. Okay. It still does. The montage still doesn't even happen okay. yet. What, okay. what what actually happens is that one of the boys steals the sunflower seeds from Mr. Sir. Yes. And they all start trying to eat them, but they see that Mr. Sir figures it out and starts coming back to the camp. So, I mean, not to the camp, to where they're digging the holes. So they throw them around and they end up exploding all over Sandy, Stanley's hole, so he has to cover them up. And the end result of that is that Stanley ends up getting taken by Mr. Sir to go see the warden. And when he's at the warden's house, he gets a few more clues to the puzzle. Well, or rather, the audience does. I don't know if he really starts to make it the. Connection. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I think yeah. it's the audience picks right. up a few more things. Which is what he he sees um, a newspaper clipping about uh, kissing Kate Barlow, robbing a train treasure, you know, uh, a jewel heist on a train. We see um, a five hundred dollar reward poster for her, and. She does this creepy thing about rattlesnake poison and nail polish. Yes! <laughs> I think this is so cool. <laughs> I, I question the validity or abil- or of it, but, you know, it, it's kind of weird because she plays it out like she's mad at Stanley, but it's not Stanley who she's mad at. I right. mean, it's, it's clearly like she's mad, mad at uh, Mr. Sir, so... When she goes to lash out, she makes it seem like she's put on nail polish to poison Stanley, and she ends up uh, scratching Mr. Sir's face and causing him to have convulsions on the floor. And yeah, and then he has to enforce with all the kids that there's nothing wrong with my face, even though it's like nasty and swollen. <laughs> I think I'm kind of pretty. <laughs> and and, and Pendanski calls him a very sensitive man. <laughs> Which he is. Yeah. But he gets – but the point is at this point in time, there's, now there's permanent animosity between him and Stanley because Stanley refuses to um, – he refuses to give Stanley water. Yes. Right. And this is, this is where the, the deal gets cemented between Stanley and Zero also. Yeah, because Zero, Zero will, will give him some water. Yeah. Yeah, and th- and that's it gets into a thing yes. that's you know when Zero runs away yeah. uh, because Zero's giving him water. And, yeah. uh, but uh, but uh, and this is now Cheryl. Cheryl, this is where it is. What I call the Kissin' Kate Barlow crime spee montage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, which which seems it's it's it, you're like okay, she's she's killing a bunch of people. All right. It goes on quite long. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's also got that like sepia tone filter that you put in in After Effects, um, <laughs> like in editing, and it looks. I will say this is one of the edit editing moments in the movie that really bothers me because it's so obvious. <laughs> I mean, it, it really does look like someone just like put the movie into their iMovie and just threw the sepia tone over top of it. Yeah. Although that wouldn't happen back then, they they just they probably scratched the film to do it, if yeah. Because it, it probably wasn't shot digitally or anything. But uh, yeah, and now now is when uh, when he whacks Pandansky in the face and runs off. Yes, yes, he does with the shovel because he keeps getting insulted, his intelligence insulted, and so he runs off. Yeah, and he runs off into the desert, and um, you know it turns into uh, there's still the the moment of Stanley trying to figure out where he's gone, and then um, you know eventually the next I, I assume it's the next day uh, Stanley steals the truck well, of Mister Sir. There's another boy who shows up for I think it's a few days, but they're not like I said they're not really clear, but he's clearly there for a little bit before it's Twitch, yeah, Twitch, the yeah. other kid before they then steal the truck. Well, he steals right. the truck, but it's... I'm pretty sure, like, they don't show it, but I don't think Stanley knew how to steal the truck. I think that Twitch probably, like, hotwired or whatever was necessary for him. Yeah, you see him heading around the truck with yeah. him, but yeah. you don't actually see when they steal the truck. You just see the truck leaving. <laughs> yeah, but considering that we clearly learn that he is the kid who steals cars, that it must have been him who helped Stanley get the car started. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then Stanley does something very stupid and drives the water truck into a hole. Yeah, yeah, into the hole. But, hey, it, it works for him because he manages to get away and also run into the desert. Um, and like I said, it turns into a survival movie for about 20, 30 minutes. Because it's, <laughs> it's him, he, and Zero trying to survive out in the desert. Um, because he, he finally, you know, I mean, he walks across the desert. He finds Zero um, a, a, up against a a boat or underneath a boat where zero has been eating what we presume, what he calls sploosh, but what we presume are the spiced peaches of Kate Barlow. Yeah. Well, cause he, he, yeah. he said they're just peach juice at that point in time. So yeah, they're peach wine by that point in time. <laughs> that, that could be true. I wasn't sure if spiced peaches was a euphemism for alcohol anyway. I have a feeling by that point those were uh, those were definitely uh, uh, a little. They had a little kick to them. Let's put it like that. Ripe. We like to say ripe. <laughs> there we go. There's a reason why the kids throwing them up later. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So uh, they end up. You know, they're trying to figure out what. To yeah, so they have to figure out a way to survive, and we get the flashback to Stanley's ancestor who survived by going to the, the god's thumb, the, the mountain that's sort of shaped like a thumbs up. And so that's where they have to go, and then that's when things start really interweaving because you know they start climbing the mountain, and Zero gets sick, uh, even throwing up, and 
Stanley has to start carting him up the mountain, and we get the uh, you know the tie-in with Madame Zeroni and bring the curse and all these sort of things. And it's like that's that's the moment for me. Like I knew that he was gonna have to drag him up the mountain once I knew his last name, but when I see it all, I'm like, okay, we're gonna break the curse, and then we're gonna go back for the whole. I'm like, okay, now I see how this all comes together um, in that moment. Yes. And, and then they get to the top and they eat, they find all the water and onions. Yes. <laughs> and then we also have the um, flashback to current day, or the other area, home, and where, where, where Dad has successfully found out the onions and, and, and peaches, and peaches, and peaches uh, are the secret to his success. Yes. Which means that the curse, the, the, the Yelnats curse is broken. Or the, theoretically, that's what it means. Yes. It's broken, but the movie's not over yet. Right. Because it, because they're still sitting on the top of a mountain. Um, and the movie doesn't end for 20 more minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so that's when... And that's when Stanley starts putting it all together, right? He's like, you know, I think it was a lipstick tube, and I think they're looking for the Kate Barlow treasure... Um, there's something down there. We know where, you know, they looked in the wrong place because of, you know, he starts sort of putting all the pieces together. So they run back to the camp. Well, you forget. Uh, also, Zero confesses to him. That's right. Yeah, Zero confesses that it was he who stole the shoes um, from Rick Fox. I don't remember the guy's name, but I know it was Rick Fox. Sweet feet. That's what I just say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Rick Fox. Uh, <laughs> and I only know that because he. I, I've seen him in the elevator at work, um, but he, uh, yeah, he stole the shoes from the from the orphanage. And when he got, you know, people were looking for the shoes, and he heard the cops. He threw them over the bridge, and that's what got Stanley in trouble. Um, there's a lot of uh, of those movie style coincidences throughout the whole thing. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Also, at this point, his his lawyer shows up for the first time. Right. The, yep. the fuzz is coming down on the warden. Trying to trying to get Stanley back, and so they run back into the camp. Uh, he and Zero start digging, and they actually end up finding the Yelnats treasure, the Kate Barlow Yelnats treasure. And we get a flashback. And we get the flashback to Kate Barlow sitting at the same boat that Zero was, um, and we get the whole explanation of you know the uh, the grandfather had come upon her and she was like, fine, you'll never find the treasure. Don't worry about it. You, and she sort of curses them in the same right. way. That so, we're, so we're clear for Zeroni people who haven't cursed. seen the movie. This is, this is Walker's grandfather, not, not um, Stanley's grandfather. Stanley's, yeah. It, yes. Yeah. That's a good point. But yeah, she lays out the curse the same way that Madame Zeroni had laid the curse on the Yelnats. There's a lot of cursing going on in the gypsy sense, not in the foul language sense. And then she kills herself. By um, Spotted Lizard, which I think is, is a unique way to do that. Yeah. And so now you understand that, okay, well, that's why Sigourney Weaver's been out here digging. Um, the unfortunate thing for Stanley and Zero is that uh, they are covered in Spotted Lizards when they get this trunk out. So the lawyer shows back up, everybody shows back up, and they're just sitting there for, it feels like about half an hour staring at them with Spotted Lizards. <laughs> could be yeah and that was one of the spots early on that uh, the first time I watched it that I didn't get I was like why aren't they biting them what you know what is it and I didn't make the connection with 
that they had been eating the onions for uh, the onions for you know the last couple of days or whatever. So that was the reason they weren't getting bitten. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Dennis. I didn't put that together until the second time through. Then it made perfect sense. Right. Yeah, I think I think this is definitely one that you need to watch a couple times if you, assuming you enjoy it the first time through, of course. But uh, this is definitely <laughs> something that you need to watch a couple times to get the whole thing um, going on. And so they've they yeah once everybody finally puts this together, uh, they get back to the camp and the lawyer and the cops that the lawyer had brought with her figure out what's going on. They find that uh, that Mr. Sir is actually uh, Marion. <laughs> Yeah, and they start making fun of him, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and he he's a criminal, and uh, you know they they start shutting down the camp, and all of a sudden, like as soon as they shut down the camp and the trunks put away, it starts raining, which it has not done there in you know forever. Yeah, it's pretty interesting there too. And then the the scene where she asks Stanley to at least let her see what's inside the trunk, and of course. He just shuts the trunk and, and says, no, he's not going to do that. Um, that added to the, um, you know, the climax, I guess, of the movie at the end that, you know, of course, everybody wants to see what's in it. And we don't get to see what's in it until a little later. But, um, you know, I thought that was nice that uh, he didn't let her see what was inside. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was a cool, t- a nice touch of, of getting a little bit of revenge on her. Yep. Either, you know. Yeah, the grandfather also when they when they finally are back at his house figures out the connection because he learns Hector's name and he goes Zeroni and he's like he's like really you know because he and he makes the whole connection because nobody else had even Stanley I don't think had made that particular connection. No. Mm-mm. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, so that's what it's when they get back to the house that they open the chest and it turns out they have all these banknotes and gold and all this stuff, they split it 50-50 with zero and the Yelnats. Yep. And so they move into this big house built on the sploosh empire of odor repellent. Anti-stinky feet with stuff. With Rick Fox. <laughs> yes. With Rick Fox as the spokesperson, so see, it all comes back together. Because he's got sweet feet, get it? No. <laughs> and Zero find his, finds his mother. That's right, Zero he, finds his mom. Yep, he, he hires right. some private detectives to track down his mom, who apparently has been looking for him. Yes. And all the kids are at his house in the swimming pool. Yep. Yes, all the kids from the, from the, the camp. And then we see the commercial, and that's the, uh, that's the end of the film proper, and then we have a, a post credit scene with Zero repeating the curse of, of Madame Zeroni. Yes. Also the dedication to the guy who died, Scott Plank. Yes. This was his final film. Uh, he's the guy that played... Uh... Scott Walker. Yes. Thank you. And yeah, that's... Uh, it's a lot. Like, there's a lot going on in this one. Yeah, you may, you may folks have to watch this movie a couple times, as Dennis indicated, because it's... It's a lot, unless Ryan just said. There's no other way to describe that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think Ryan said earlier, you definitely can't be multitasking when you're watching this movie. You step out of the room for a minute or, you know, you get distracted. Just a tidbit of information will, you know, make it a little more difficult to understand what's going on later on in the film. 
You know, I, I really like this film because it really challenges the notion that kids' movies have to be dumb or they have to be, like, toned down or that kids can't handle multiple plot lines like this. Um, and granted, I think that cinematically there's ways that they could have uh, maybe done it better, but I'm, I just think that it's very ambitious that they did it in the first place. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a perfect family movie. Yeah. I mean, it's just great. Like, everyone could sit and watch together without any question. Yep. Yeah, Ryan, did your kids usually watch with you? Did they, or did... they watched? Uh, they they managed to. It's sort of similar to me. They watched parts of it here and there. Um, I'll, I'll be honest; neither of them really enjoyed it. That's depressing. Yeah, um, and they, and you know, Mike. But to be fair, like my kids, my kids watched a lot of TCM with me. So I mean, like they're used to. They're, they're, and they're yeah, they're used to to different stuff and 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 things like this, you know, with weird plot lines. I mean, they've seen Casablanca a couple times too, and they don't have any problem picking up most of what's going on there. Um, so I don't think it was the plot lines that confused them. I just don't know that they were really invested in the characters necessarily, because this is very plot driven. And I don't like me personally. I like I don't really care one way or another what happens to Stanley. Like, I want to find out what the mystery is. That was what pulled me forward through it. So I think for them, that was probably what they, they didn't necessarily latch on to, like Stanley or Zero or any of the characters. Holes really falls into this era of young adult novels where it's this very surreal world, and um, while it's based sort of in reality, um, there's elements that are very strange. Like, another example is Tangerine. Um, so if, if you enjoy Holes and kind of the mystery that it's going for and like the age group and everything, I would definitely recommend that book as well. Um, but I think it was just that era of young adult books that it came out during um, that really influenced it. Yeah, I, I, that, that sounds, yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, I think, like I said, I, I really enjoy the mystery aspect of it, um, especially the second time through. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's different ways to go about a film and this is definitely a plot driven one more so than, uh, it, not to say the characters aren't interesting, but it's, you're not relying on the journey of the hero necessarily. Like Todd said earlier, like Stanley's already fully formed, like he's made his moral code and all that sort of stuff. You're more interested in what happens to him than his, you know, personal growth or anything. Yeah. And he sticks to it throughout. I mean, he's very consistent. He is. He doesn't really. Yeah, he doesn't really change throughout the whole movie. Even even uh, in Zero, the same way, right? Probably the second most um, spotlighted character. You know, he doesn't change either, except for you know, like learning to read and things like that. But as far as you know, morality and things like that, he doesn't change either. I don't know if this was mentioned earlier, but the book that this is based on is a Newbery Medal Award winner, um, which is basically the highest honor that a young adult uh, novel can receive. Cool. Yeah, we've discussed a few of those before. I mean, it's very common for Disney to pick those up and make movies out of them, so... Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so then let's, uh, let, let's rate Holmes. All right. Uh, I, it only makes sense to, to let our guest Dennis go first. So, uh, Dennis, on a scale of one to five, what do you think? Um, I'd give it a three. I thought it was, uh, like I said early on, I thought it was a, a decent movie. It did uh, 
it did hold my interest, and there were so many plot twists and, you know, like you said, three stories going on at once. Um, you know, I give it a solid three. Um, you know, I thought it was a decent movie. Okay. All right, so a three from Dennis. Uh, I would agree with you, sir. I would also give it a three. I think it's a. I think it is solid, and a, I think once you go back to it, it actually makes a little more sense and, and has a little more more uh, fun about it. I think the first time through for me was all about just trying to figure out what was happening and why, and then you know now that you you know it, when you go back to it, it definitely uh, works a lot better. So I, I would agree with him to give it a three. All right, uh, I, I'm going to let Rachel go last since it was her pick. So, so Todd, what about you? Um, I'm going to give it a little bit higher. I'm going to go with a three and a half, and because I, I kind of sort of feel like yeah, three three and a half is the right range for it. But um, I'm giving it a little bit more because I feel just like the characters in it like are just everyone. It it's worth it, you know. It's not, and I'm not as bothered by the bad cuts. I mean, we've seen worse. In other movies, this, this is true. This so, is true, yeah. I kind of sort of feel it's, you know, it's a little bit different, is all. And yeah, I'm going to stick with that. All right. Cheryl, what about you? I'm also going to go with the three and a half. Um, but I like how the how everyone everything was intertwined and connected. That's what I really liked about this movie that that every piece was interconnected with the other piece. That the you know, the that's what connected with Kate, who was connected with the guy who, oh, you know, the lady who, the guy, lady who, and the guy who owned the land, and and Sam who sold the onions and the peaches and everything. So I love the interconnectedness of this. I agree, it's very complex, though. I definitely agree. It's it's one of those things that you might eat two times with it, definitely. But it was enjoyable. All right, Rachel, what do you say? I am right there with Cheryl and Todd. I'm going to give this three and a half. Um, again, I I really like how complex it is for a kids movie. Um, it has a lot of very deep issues of the notion of choice versus fate, which is something that people you know have been debating since the beginning of time whether things are fated to happen, whether we have a, we whether we can change. Uh, the path that we're on. Um, I mean, you look at the relationship of uh, Stanley and Zero, and Chance brought them together and put them at this camp together, but it was Stanley's choice to teach him how to read and to for them to become friends uh, that ended up leading to other, <laughs> other things that weren't necessarily in their control, but end up being for the better for the both of them. Um, and I like all the performances. I really love Sigourney Weaver in this movie. Um, and John Voight, of course, also hilarious, and Julie Hill. I've already talked about some of the filmmaking techniques that bother me about this movie, but story-wise, I think it's just so strong, and the acting is good enough to uh, warrant three and a half stars for this. If the Coen brothers remake this movie and cast John Goodman as one of the camp counselors, I will give this automatic five stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can understand this. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, that's that will do it for our look at holes then. So we're all in the three, three and a half range. All right. Uh, so, Dennis, uh, thanks for joining us on on this show. I uh, appreciate it. I'm not a professional reviewer like you guys are, so I apologize for being somewhat brief, but uh, you guys do this all the time, and 
I don't. No, not to not to worry, not to worry, my friend. Uh, we we take all comers, and uh, we are a professional only in the aspect of that um, we do it. Um, we, 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 other than that, that's that's about as professional as it gets for us. If only, if only. Yes, eventually, <laughs> eventually, right. Right. But like I said at the beginning, I, I do enjoy your show, and, and uh, thanks for having me on tonight. I really enjoyed myself. Thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right. All right, so uh, you guys want to let us know what you guys thought of Holes. Uh, please do so. DisneyFilmProject.gmail.com. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Disney Film Project. Of course, uh, you can tweet us at this Film Project or on the website. Leave a note in the show notes in the comments section there. Um, and you can let us know what you guys thought of Holes as well. Um, a lot of you guys listen on Stitcher and Diz Dads Radio. We appreciate that. Uh, and then, of course, there's those of you who are listening on iTunes. So if you, uh, if you are doing that, if you could go and you could check us out there and you could also leave us a rating or review, that would help out quite a bit. So if you could do that, we would appreciate it. Uh, it helps people find the show and helps spread the word about the show. You guys are the only uh, advertising and marketing that we have the budget for, so we appreciate you guys spreading the word. Alright, so that'll do it for this week's episode. Uh, thanks again to Dennis and for he and Rachel and Todd and Cheryl. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you again soon. This warrant is unwarranted. This is my special nail polish. I make it myself. You want to know my spe- secret ingredient? Rattlesnake venom. I just love what it does to the coloring. It's perfectly harmless when it's dry. Hey, maybe it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights like it did in the Bible. Smells like puke from a mule been ruminating on asparagus for two weeks. I'm not stupid. I know everyone thinks I am. I just don't like answering stupid questions.